0: You're listening to the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. On the show today, we spoke with Ben Eltham about federal politics. Then we had a chat with Dr Richard Dennis, Chief Economist at the Australia Institute, about his essay in The Monthly called Canberra Needs a Watchdog – and then we had a chat with US-based science author Jennifer Ackerman, who is in Melbourne to talk about her book, The Genius of Birds. And finally, we spoke with Dirk Kuhlbühweidt, Deputy Editor-in-Chief at Der Spiegel, about the upcoming German elections. And you are listening to Uncommon Sense on 3 FM. And uh, as I promised before that break, we will be talking now with Ben Eltham. Hi, Ben. G'day, how are you going? Oh, good. Not bad. Yeah. yeah. Excellent, Amy. Enjoying the sunshine today. Yeah, it's actually a really
1: nice morning, isn't it?
0: It was stunning. Yeah, I, I was um, a bit relieved, to be honest. I've started to feel the cold recently and it's quite disturbing. Uh, so <laughs> You're getting old, Amy. <laughs> oh, gosh. I just, so, I don't know what's happened to me. I've just switched completely from one end, which is, oh, the cold is fabulous, to, oh, my gosh, it's freezing.
1: Um,
0: <laughs> but that said, yeah, it was, it was good. I uh, went to the footy on Sunday. Oh,
1: the that footy. Was, uh,
0: yeah, we had the full um, Arctic wind, rain for 15 minutes. Um,
1: Proper Melbourne Sunday, yeah, that is. Yeah, it was yeah.
0: great. Yeah, I yeah. couldn't feel my feet afterwards, but <laughs> <laughs> totally worth it for the, the real, you know, legit MCG uh, football experience. So, yeah very, very much fun. And I see you're wearing your winter scarf that is personally yeah. hand-knitted.
1: Yes, yes, it yeah. is, yes. Well, it's it's very practical, obviously, in these chilly times. Yeah, it is mm. very
0: practical. might have to embrace that. Um, ben, we have uh, quite a few things to discuss this week about federal politics, um, and one of them is around, uh, well, let's start with media law reform because um, it's kind of the The easier one.
1: Sure. Well, the government's been trying to get media law reform through the Senate for, well, years now, really, and they Mm. still have not been able to do it. Um, And, of course, the big news in the media this week was that CBS, the American television network, has come in and bought Channel 10. So Channel 10, the uh, ailing third network in Australia, um, actually in receivership, so it's gone broke, Um, and CBS has swooped in from the United States and purchased Channel 10. Yeah. And and so um, that has implications for media law reform because uh, there was very heavy lobbying of the government by the Murdoch family, um, Mm. that family we know so well (laughs) in the Australian media, um, to allow the, the... um, purchase of Channel 10 by Lachlan Murdoch, basically, mm. um, uh, you know, and that would have required a change to the current laws, which have a sort of two out of three media ownership rule, which means that you can't own assets across all different forms of media. So screen, print and radio. Um, and... That's now really, by the by, because CBS has come in and bought Channel 10.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, we've now seen uh, Penny Wong uh, come out and say, well, of course, we now don't need uh, media law reform because that was apparently the point of it. Is it really such a short-termist reform um, as, as Penny Wong is suggesting?
1: Well, I mean, the government's so-called reforms were really just a sweeping deregulation, so yeah. they were going to sweep away a whole bunch of real of laws and regulations Uh Lots of changes to Australian content rules, by the way. Um, And a complete sort of abrogation of any responsibility in the digital space. So still the government was going to do nothing about the Facebook-Google duopoly. Mm. Um, There was going to be no local content rules enforced on any of the tech giants. So, I mean, I think there's plenty of law reform to be done in media. Uh, but clearly, there is no addit- no 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 desire for that from the government. No, really. I'll, I mean, I think the government will, will push ahead trying to get this bill through, but certainly oh, just
0: to save face. Yeah,
1: you could see that Labor and and the Greens and the Crossbench won't agree to it. I don't think.
0: No, and well, one of the reasons why this didn't get through was because the Nick Xenophon team removed their support. They weren't happy with um, Pauline Hanson's One Nation Party, and th- what they really were pushing for which was reformed to the ABC and their charter um, to really insert certain words to suggest that they had to be fair and balanced um, and also to reveal the salaries of its top broadcasters so you know that was uh, when push came to shove the deal breaker for the Nick Xenophon team Um, you know do you think that it can come back from
1: this? Well, yeah, that's right. So Pauline Hanson wanted to insert these kind of clauses into the bill to um, stomp on the ABC. Probably these, this is all about the fact that the ABC has been fairly assiduous in investigating Pauline Hanson over the yeah, years. And, doing their job. Uh, and, of course, many right-wingers view the ABC as a, a left-wing organisation captured by the communists within its own ranks. (laughs) Um, And so um, she was going to insert that fair and balanced clause. Mm. Now, um, there's a lot to be said for regulations that force media companies to be fair and balanced. But, of course, the interesting thing about that is it would only have applied to the ABC and no other broadcasters or publishers. So, um, you know, there would be no rule for (laughs) News Limited, for example, to be fair and balanced. Classic. Um, And... The salary thing was kind of interesting because many people pointed out that um, a similar similar thing has happened in the United Kingdom with the BBC salaries being revealed, the top salaries there, Mm. and what that revealed really was a huge gender imbalance with – uh, the men being paid way in excess of what uh, prominent women on the broadcaster were being paid. and So perhaps a little bit of sunlight wouldn't be such a bad disinfectant for the ABC on that one, actually.
0: No, well, I, I can't argue with that, Ben. I'm all for uh, actually removing the gender pay gap where there is one in like-for-like roles, so...
1: Yeah, and I think it's, it's interesting too because, you know, there's a, a lot of diversity within the ABC but we don't really see it on the screen. No. You know, so um, I think it, the ABC's got quite a lot of work uh, to do on that kind of stuff mm. and, you know, it's still quite a hidebound bureaucratic organisation, certainly talking to the people that I know working inside it.
0: Yeah, well, you know, SBS naturally are doing better on the diversity front um, but it kind of is a contrast really to see SBS and ABC.
1: Yeah, SBS are doing better on the diversity front, and they're probably doing better in some aspects of programming, but SBS is also struggling, I think, Mm. with funding constraints. So SBS is really almost privatized now, the degree to which they rely on advertising, and they really make Extremely commercial decisions on their programming.
0: Yeah, I've noticed there's a lot of cooking shows actually.
1: Oh, there's a whole cooking channel. Channel, In fact, yes, indeed.
0: (laughs) But even on the main channel, there's gosh, I'm not well. Let's just say I'm not into cooking shows and leave it at that. But talking about socialism and socialists, uh, Ben, because you know, well, it's one of my favourite topics. Yeah, um, let's talk about that and the fact that Labour are absolute, completely, and utter socialists according to Matthias Cormann.
1: Yes, Finance Minister Matthias Cormann gave a speech accusing Labor of, wait for it, socialism. Um, which would be news to actual real-life existing socialists. Uh,
0: yeah, or, <laughs> or anyone in the Labor Party or anyone following politics.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think the Labor Party has been an out out socialist since about 1904 when <laughs> uh, Andrew Watson became the first Prime Minister of the Labor Party. Uh, it's been a moderate parliamentary democratic party really for its entire existence and mm. – it's been very successful um, being that, so it seems rather a long bow to stretch to claim that the uh, the ALP is somehow. Uh going to expropriate property and and do all sorts of other nasty sort of socialist things. Mm. Um, And, of course, the examples that Corman gave to explain why the ALP was socialist were really very mild reforms, things like raising the top personal tax rate to 49% um, and uh, very, very mild winding back of certain tax concessions. Mm. So if that's what equals socialism, I think many of us would say let's have some more socialism. Yeah, I mean,
0: what is peak socialism? Because uh, clearly Australia needs it, this is something that has spooked the coalition, and we can see it in their polling. Um, and obviously, politicians pay attention to polls. Whether or not the voting public cares or not is another thing. But uh, news polls show that their primary support has fallen to thirty-five percent, and in two-party preferred, it's fifty-four to forty-six in favour with of Labor. Now. We were talking off air, Ben, about um, this whole drive against inequality that Labor has been leading and that really has been their point of difference between uh, themselves and the policy reforms that they're putting forward, You know, for example, the reforms to trusts um, versus the coalition that currently doesn't seem to have much direction uh, and is just picking random policy areas to focus on, such as immigration and energy with the snowy hydro system scheme. So, I mean, is this just another kind of way for them to try and claw back some kind of uh, semblance of a, a lead?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think the coalition is desperate, basically. They've been unnerved by Labor's approach on inequality and it's cutting through. It's cutting through with voters, I think. And the reason it's cutting through is because it's real. You know, uh, there really is a, a widening inequality in our society and there's a, an increasing insecurity. You know, people are finding it harder and harder to make ends meet, particularly at the bottom half of the income distribution, you know, for ordinary workers on average wages and below, you know, those people are doing it tough. And as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, real wages in this country haven't increased now for about five years and household incomes are actually falling. Mm. Now, in a time of supposed economic growth, that's real pain. Um, and, of course, we know that energy prices are going up. House prices are now out of reach of ordinary Australians in many of the capital cities. So it, it's it's getting increasingly hard, you know, for the middle class. And the coalition's really got no answer for that. Mm. You know, they, they really are struggling to come to terms with Labor's attack there. Uh, and, and I think that's what's driving these wild claims of Labor being socialist and, and also some of these distractions like uh, the the statue thing and oh, <laughs> the yeah. latest crackdown against asylum seekers, you know, which really is desperate, I think.
0: Let's just uh, briefly explain the statue thing for anyone who's has no clue what we're talking oh, about.
1: Oh, <laughs> I suppose we have to.
0: Well, you dropped it, Ben. It's my fault. Yes, sorry, sorry. (laughs)
1: Um, So, um, people are getting upset about statues. This probably actually goes back to what's been going on in the United States Mm. uh, with the protests against Confederate statues in the southern states of the U.S. there. Of course, um, statues to Civil War heroes of the South, men who were openly racist and. Uh, fought a war to protect slavery. Mm. Um, Of course, in Australia, we also have a controversial and in many cases dark past, and we have many statues to British imperialists, to explorers, uh, to white men who were involved in some cases in genocide like john batman um, so you know the, the debate about our history has started to roll in australia as well and that's given the politicians uh, a platform to make you know their usual irresponsible claims so malcolm turnbull's t- you know come out and, and basically said it would be outrageous if we were to pull down statues because you know that would be rewriting history
0: Yes and then Bill Shorten said no we should not uh, remove statues but we should alter the plaques or add something to the plaques to uh, you know modify uh, what is stated about about what really happened.
1: Yeah, well, you know, if you talk to Indigenous people, they have a saying called the white blindfold view of history and I think that's a little bit what's going on here. Once again, white Australia is really struggling to face up to what really happened in this continent mm. um, and, and so it's always a perennially controversial issue, particularly for conservatives, of course, who, who see it as the thin end of the wedge and the beginning of a kind of American-style identity politics in this country, which is apparently to be decried.
0: Yes, of course, well, it's really the continuation of the history wars which doesn't seem to relent. Um, it, you have quiet periods, but it's still there
1: yeah, well it's it's one of history's longest wars, the history yeah. war and and I mean, the reason that we fight over history is is very simple. It's because history determines the present that we live in, and so of course, People are going to have differing interpretations of history, and that's that's a great thing, I think. You know, but all I'd urge people on Triple R, Triple R listeners, to do is to actually read some history.
0: Yeah, it's called evidence. Yeah, and looking at your sources. Um, Absolutely,
1: read some Ray Evans, for example, on the genocide, the, mm. the, the frontier wars that happened in Queensland.
0: Exactly. Um, now, also one final thing before we go, Ben, um, asylum seekers. Uh, we've seen an announcement just about a day ago um, to talk about or basically the asylum seekers who came to Australia for medical attention because uh, they couldn't receive adequate medical support and attention over in Manus and Nauru. They came here, we've given them that attention, they um, were provided with some form of you know, housing and uh, and very, you know, obviously uh, minimal income support because they are unable to work um, as part of the conditions of their stay here. Um, and we've seen not only has Peter Dutton suggested that uh, the lawyers who defend asylum seekers like these are un-Australian, but the government uh, now intends to take away that income support and the housing that these asylum seekers have relied upon. What, um, where are they going to go Ben and what's going to happen?
1: Well I don't think we know where they're going to go Um, it's pretty clear what the government is doing here it's yet more of the exemplary cruelty that the government likes to mete out to asylum seekers I think basically whenever they get behind the polls it's a way of resetting the political agenda and they know that after 15 years of gradual cruelty towards people seeking asylum on on our shores uh, that this kind of stuff is still popular you know one thing that I have been slightly encouraged about is that Labour has actually opposed this. So perhaps for the first time in many years Labour has grown a bit of a spine on this issue and mm. it actually um said that they they think this is unacceptable.
0: Well it is. I mean you can't just turf people out onto the street.
1: Well, everything that we do to asylum seekers is unacceptable, in my opinion. I mean, the fact that we detain them in a jail without trial on foreign shores, that's unacceptable. Um, The fact that they're allowed to, um, in many cases, die through lack of medical treatment, that's unacceptable. The fact that an asylum seeker was murdered by PNG security guards, that's unacceptable to me as well, so... Um, It's part of a dark past and a dark history, a dark present of Australian Mm. immigration policy. Um, And, of course, with Peter Dutton having ambitions to be Prime Minister himself, you know, he's going to continue, I think, Ah, uh, with these kind of stunts, and that's what it is. It's a stunt to gain media attention, you know, get twenty-four hours of news cycle attention, and he'll think up something more cruel again next week. I reckon
0: it's a very sad state of affairs. That whole policy area, and um, no light at the end of the tunnel.
1: Yeah, you know, and you know who I blame for this, and th- and this might sound paradoxical, but I actually blame Labor. It's Labor's um, inability to oppose the government as the opposition on much of this policy that's allowed this policy to get to the place where it is now. Labor, mm-hmm. of course, reintroduced offshore detention back when Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard were the prime ministers. Um, you know, so apart from a very brief period in the early Rudd years where we moved towards a more humane policy, Labor's also been in lockstep with the opposition on, uh, you know, stopping the boats mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, punishing people who seek asylum in Australia in order to deter them. Um, And and the logical conclusion of such a policy is the situation we're seeing in Manus Island right now where the the camp's being closed um, and people are basically being told to fend for themselves in Papua New Guinea society, you know, one of the poorest and least secure countries in the world
0: absolutely and i think anyone who follows politics uh, may remember that labor conference where there was such a huge debate within the party about whether they should take that position and clearly you know the result was that they did take it but uh, perhaps we need another debate to um, reset this broader issue around inequality fair yeah i mean <laughs> it's time
1: for labor to face up to this yeah. one i think Um, If they're going to talk about inequality in uh, society more broadly, then it's time to redress some of the worst inequalities, which are some of these ones that they've created, really, in immigration policy.
0: Absolutely. Thank you, Ben, for coming in to chat with us about federal politics. It's always wonderful to have you with us. Thanks, Amy. That was Ben Altham, National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda and a regular guest on this show to talk federal politics. Yes, you are listening to 3RRR FM and this is Uncommon Sense. I am absolutely delighted to have with me on the phone from canberra dr richard dennis who is chief economist at the australia institute and uh and has written a piece in the monthly which has just come out uh yesterday and it is entitled canberra needs a watchdog thanks uh, richard for joining us Good morning. Morning. So, uh, this is something which has been, well, it peri- periodically comes up as an issue because, uh, you know, we see various shady, uh, questionable actions from our politicians, but, uh, really not a great deal of, um, uh, independent oversight to be able to hold uh these people to account to investigate to look into what they've done and then to independently rule on their actions and you in your piece uh talk about the states and uh and basically how all of them uh have one and two uh you know territories are setting them setting them up so really it is just the federal government that's out of step on this aren't they
2: that's right. So, I mean, every now and then we, we hear call for uh, a corruption watchdog in Canberra um, over the last couple of decades it has come up. And, and every time it's been either ignored or dismissed as, as entirely unnecessary. But, of course, every couple of years we, uh, we see scandals like we saw last year with the travel entitlements and uh, former health minister Susan Lay's very regular trips to the Gold Coast. Uh, you know, potentially to buy property while she was there. And while we have these media storms, absolute media storms about the possibility that a politician might have accessed a a couple of hundred dollars worth of flights or a couple of hundred dollars worth of cars, uh, the federal parliament is responsible for handing out over $400 billion per year in taxpayers' money. And, and, And while we get intense media scrutiny on the potential impropriety of parliamentarians when it comes to travel, uh, we're supposed to take at face value claims that there's no need for an independent corruption watchdog to ensure that parliamentarians, public servants, their contractors or anyone else uh, is, is engaged in systematic and deliberate corrupt conduct. The kind of conduct that we know is not uncommon in local government or at state government levels.
0: Yes, and so clearly, you know, no government, no potential government, could be immune from corruption from from any element, Uh, and obviously, you know, a federal body would oversee all parliamentarians, not just the government. Uh, Let's talk about some of the, um, I guess, issues that come up uh, that a. A, a federal ICAC um, would oversee or potentially uh, have their eye on. So, um, and by I'll just read out what ICAC means. If anyone is um, not au fait with this, it's the Independent Commission Against Corruption and and obviously uh, New South Wales has one of the, the better, more well-known ones because they have uh, had many scalps in recent history. Uh, but you talk about um, a range of former federal ministers who are now engaged in, in business and in lobbying um, that, you know, it could, does create conflicts but who oversees or, um, or you know, prevents any of these kind of conflicts of interest from occurring?
2: Well, that's right. At the moment we're just supposed to take on face value that politicians will voluntarily comply with a voluntary code of conduct uh, which exists for former ministers, uh, there's no code of conduct for former members of parliament. So we have a very partial voluntary scheme at the federal level. When at the state level, so taking the New South Wales Corruption Watchdog for example, uh, we, we've got former ministers in jail because uh, they were uh, found to be uh, corruptly, criminally, uh, uh, you know, uh, exchanging favours for, for for money. It's The idea that this kind of conduct is possible at the state level, is possible at the local level, uh, but impossible at the federal level, just simply beggars belief. So uh, in an environment where we've got former ministers running around uh, working as lobbyists for industries, we recently learned that the the, the former minister for small business, who's now uh, head of a peak body for small business, was actually on the payroll as a lobbyist for the peak body, before he'd resigned from Parliament, uh, a, a, a financial uh, a financial windfall that he didn't disclose to Parliament, but but he didn't break the law, and and we, we didn't uncover this. Uh, it, we we kind of just stumbled onto this. So if we had a federal corruption watchdog, we're talking about a well-resourced agency whose job it is is to proactively search for such conduct to proactively follow up uh, accusations of such conduct. And if you think about the tenor of modern politics, politicians are defaming each other and accusing each other of corrupt conduct on a very regular basis. But at the moment, those allegations are never investigated. Now, Mm -hmm. I, I don't think most politicians are corrupt, and you can't have a democracy without politicians. So I think it would be in the politicians' interests themselves to have a well-respected body that can and does investigate allegations of corruption because if one politician accuses another of corruption and a a well-regarded body investigates it and finds there's uh, there's nothing to see, that's important information for the public. And all the public gets at the moment is accusations that everyone's corrupt. Well, guess what? They're beginning to conclude that everybody's corrupt. I don't think they are, but we need to look into the ones who might be.
0: Mm, Absolutely. What do they have to hide? And you do write uh, that you say, unless our parliament moves to create one soon, it will continue to lose the moral authority on which delegated democratic authority... Actually rests. I mean, that's a, a really important point. Is that we're putting our faith in these elected representatives, and reputationally, they're constantly battering each other. Uh, and and obviously, one can do that in parliament because you have parliamentary privilege, uh, and and obviously, regular lay people do not and would uh, would be, you know, potentially looking at defamation. So this is one thing um, that really does undermine our trust and faith in politicians, which is already at an all-time low.
2: Oh, absolutely. As I, I said before, and I mean it, you can't have a democracy without politicians. You simply can't. Um, <laughs> the minute we elect someone to our parliament, they become a politician. They're our representative, and we can't do democracy without them. Yet at the moment, uh, we've, we've created an environment where, 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 where name-calling and accusations has become standard fare, And those accusations, because they're never investigated, because they're never examined, because they're never scrutinised, they're they're free to make. As you said, a politician can stand up, exempt from defamation law and, and make the most outrageous allegations in Parliament. And unfortunately, we know that mud often sticks. So I think the political class needs to defend itself. I think they need... To invest in infrastructure, they need to invest in institutions like a federal corruption watchdog that the public genuinely has faith in, as they do in most states. Uh, And in turn, that would suggest that politicians uh, who haven't been found to corrupt most likely aren't. Or if there is a serious allegation made, the public will know that someone well resourced has looked into it. So it might seem odd, but I actually think. Uh, a federal ICAC could be a great thing for federal parliamentarians.
0: Exactly. And one of the um, great points you make is that uh, it is widely supported by the majority of Australians who have been surveyed. So in a poll uh, which the Australia Institute commissioned, uh, 80% of all respondents supported a federal corruption watchdog and 84% of coalition voters supported a federal body modelled on uh, the New South Wales ICAC. So, I mean, that's a, as you say, it's a pretty strong base to begin with when uh, very few politicians really have been pushing for an ICAC. You know, I'm thinking about the minor parties may have been a bit more vocal, but certainly not the major parties.
2: That's right. Look, for a long time, everyone's just hoped the issue would go away. But it doesn't surprise me that 84% of the coalition voters support it. If if you're worried about government waste, if you're worried about taxpayers' money being wasted, then surely the conservative thing to do is is to implement law enforcement bodies with investigative powers specifically aimed at ensuring we get good government. So accountability is not a progressive issue, And, and the fact that the Australia Institute survey shows such strong support amongst coalition voters shows really the only barrier here is the uh is 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 uh, is the status quo yeah the biggest barrier is the status quo we don't have one right now mm. and it's a scary thing potentially to implement one but other states have done it um and yes you know ministers have resigned premiers have resigned but if you haven't done anything wrong you've got nothing to fear and if you haven't done anything wrong, what that survey shows is there's a lot of votes and a lot of goodwill to be had by supporting
0: it. Exactly. And, Richard, I know uh, you have to go in a minute, uh, but I just want to ask you about Tony Fitzgerald, uh, who you reference in this piece, because I know the Australia Institute um, has been working with him and there was, uh, I guess, the Fitzgerald principles, were they, that, um, that you were yeah. seeking to have parliamentarians sign up to and they were these very... Um, well, they were excellent principles, but they were—you you would think—fairly easy for any person, a human being, to sign up to, and yet politicians struggled. Could you share more about what happened there and how this that relates to this?
2: Yeah, look, Tony Fitzgerald, who who ran the Fitzgerald Royal Commission into police corruption in Queensland, has continued to be a very strong advocate for accountability and corruption watchdogs, and uh, he's written a number of things. Uh, supporting the 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 model being pushed by the Australia Institute for a, a corruption watchdog, as 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 part of that, related to that, he developed a set of principles that he thought that all parliamentarians should be able to sign up to, basic principles of accountability in governance and transparency. And yeah, you're right. The the response has been uh, has been underwhelming. There's been uh, a much stronger a uh, much stronger. Uh, support for the principles from the minor parties and from from the Labour opposition but the the coalition MPs have tended just to ignore the issue and I don't think that means they support corruption, I don't think that at all but it does show that they really just think they can bury their heads in the sand and wait this one out And Mm. uh, I think that's a a brave call I think that's a heroic call and uh, I hope democracy does what democracy is supposed to do and put some pressure on these people to start solving the problems
0: absolutely and i'd encourage anyone listening to look up the fitzgerald principles and the results uh because some of these principles are pretty important such as not to spend public money except for public benefit not to mislead or deceive to treat all citizens equally uh and it has the list of the signatories on there and the uh and the house of representatives and whether they've signed up to those principles and each individual principles so um that's a really important thing that uh you guys have been doing as well on this issue. Uh, Richard, thank you so much for having a chat with us about this um, and uh, and we'll watch um, and hopefully see the momentum continue to grow for a federal ICAC. Thank you, Thank you
2: very much.
0: <laughs> Thanks. And that was Dr. Richard Dennis, Chief Economist at the Australia Institute. And you can read his piece, Canberra Needs a Watchdog, in the latest edition of the monthly. That's the September edition, which just came out on Monday. Uh, and obviously Richard uh, writes many excellent pieces for the monthly, so you can go through the whole archive and check it out. It's very much uh, worth a read. One of my favourites was called Spreadsheets of Power. And you're listening to Uncommon Sense on 3 FM with Amy Mullins. It's my absolute pleasure to have with me in the studio now, Jennifer Ackerman, who is a science writer and author, and she's written a book called The Genius of Birds. It's out via Scribe Publishing in Australia, and Jennifer is here for the Melbourne Writers Festival, among other things. Hi, Jennifer, and thanks for joining me. Hi, a great pleasure to be here. It's lovely to have you. Now, I know um, that you are very passionate about birds, and it comes through in this book because it's just almost an ode to birds and their their great genius. First of all talking about birds and how they've evolved. I was really interested in the fact that humans and birds have evolved separately but kind of in parallel. And that they really have a very, a long history. Our last common ancestor occurred 300 million years ago, but there are still similarities that we have with birds. And one of them is some of our cognitive abilities. So first of all, I want to talk about, I guess, your passion for birds and and where that came from, and then we'll move into some of the content around um, individual species of birds and the difference between genius and intelligence. So Jennifer, how did you come to write about birds and become so passionate about them?
3: well i 've been um, bird watching since I was a child. Um, I grew up in a family of five girls. My father was a bird watcher, and um, the only way to spend time alone with my dad was to go out in the woods with him and watch birds so uh, from the age of about eight or nine i um, I was out there uh, looking at birds um, figuring out trying to figure out what they were and um, so it 's been a passion for a very long time and You know, I've always thought that birds were very resourceful creatures, but it's really been in the past um, 10 or 15 years that um, the the scientific studies have come out suggesting that birds are far more intelligent than we ever imagined. There was, you know, Betty the crow that could bend a hook and um, uh, use it as a tool to, to pull up a little bucket with food at the bottom um, there was alex the yeah. african gray parrot that um really proved that um birds are capable of uh of a kind of cognition that's on par with primates um alex was extraordinary in his use of of labels and language for uh, everything from colors and shapes to numbers he's um just a fantastically intelligent bird and he wasn't alone.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And had a good relationship
3: um, with his uh, handler or the scientist involved? Correct. Irene Pepperberg who's now at Harvard um, had a, a very... A fantastic relationship with him, and also with birds, um, uh, African grey parrots. Since then, there's a, a bird she's working with now, named Griffin, who is teaching her all kinds of new um, capabilities of of these really super intelligent birds. Um, so I I just was fascinated by these new studies coming out, and said, okay, I want to leap in here and explore what we've learned and. You know, you mentioned that we've had 300 million years separating our evolution from uh, last from a birds and last common ancestor was that long ago. But what we've learned is that um, birds, through through convergent evolution, really they they have um, brains that are very different from ours. We thought that it took a um, a, a neocortex with layers of cells to be intelligent well birds have taught us otherwise their neurons are arranged in little bulb like clusters but the really important thing in intelligent is the connections between neurons and in that way birds brains are very similar to our own. they have some of the very similar pathways their um, ways of of song learning are very similar to our ways of of learning languages their um, their uh, Uh, neural pathways they use to recognize faces are very similar to to ours so there are these um, convergences of cognition just as you described that are are really quite remarkable
0: Mm. and they have high levels or concentrated levels
3: of neurons in certain areas don't they yes they do in the frontal cortex or the equivalent of the of, of our frontal cortex they it turns out that some um uh, species in particular the parrots and the corvets um, their uh, brains are very dense with neurons in fact um, those two groups of birds have um, twice as many neurons in their um, this frontal part of the brain as um, primates do and four times as many as uh, mammal brains of the same size
0: wow that's amazing. So when we're looking at the brain size of birds, that's often one reason why people have assumed that they didn't have a great deal of cognitive ability. And you talk about brain size in this book and that in particular, birds, the similarity between birds and humans is that we do have larger brains uh, relative to our body size. So could you share a bit more about that interesting point? Yes, it, and, and um, it is, you know,
3: we, we have used as, as, a, as a slur, a derogatory remark, you know, you bird brain. But um, it turns out that that um, some birds, anyway, have brains that are surprisingly large for their body size. It is called relative brain size, and it is similar um, to humans. So, if you look at the, the you know the size of a bird's body, its brain is in fact um, quite large, and this is true for uh, corvids like um, you know uh, crows, or ravens, uh, jays. But it's also true for small birds. Um, one of the birds that's very common in the U.S. is the chickadee, and it has a very large brain for its very tiny body size. So, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's quite a, a, um, uh, a remarkable feature of their um, their brains
0: absolutely so let's go to the interesting distinction you make in the history that you explore around the concept of intelligence and genius because you do choose genius for a reason as the, the part of the title of this book the genius of birds it's not the intelligence of birds uh, why did you explore that or choose that as your title and, and that particular language was important to you
3: Yes, I think of genius as the ability to know what you're doing in your environment, um, to be able to solve the problems of your environment, um, to figure out uh, whether those problems are environmental problems or they're social problems. You know, we have uh, an environment that's made up of our um, natural habitat, but also of our social habitat. And birds have, um, a real genius for solving the problems of their social and environmental worlds. And they've been doing that for a very long period of time. So, so that's the, the, the definition that I use of genius, this, um, this ability to know what you're doing within your environment. Um, and, you know, the, the book is, is also, it's about intelligence, which is the ability to solve problems using um, cognitive skills rather than instinct, and that is something that uh, many birds have shown us they can do.
0: They have, and it, you share that research throughout the book, and it's really interesting to look at some of the particular case studies that you utilise. One of them, which is um, fascinating and I had no idea about, was the New Caledonian crow. New Caledonia isn't really that far from here and uh, i note that in your book you mentioned that new caledonia is actually the geological offspring of an ancient supercontinent called gondwana land (laughs) so we technically we may have some you know relation to um the birds that are there and the at least that ecosystem which clearly it's evolved since then but uh, it was fascinating to even hear that we had some connection to new caledonia This New Caledonian Crow, though, obviously it's part of the Corvid family, which you highlight as being a very intelligent and excellent family or grouping of birds in itself. But this particular crow stands out for a reason. Could you share with us what makes it so special?
3: Yes. So um, the the New Caledonian Crow is a superb problem solver. Um, A few years ago, there was a, a YouTube that went viral. I think the BBC produced a program showing a new Caledonian crow solving an eight-stage puzzle. It had, there was a little bit of food at the end of it, but this bird had to solve the pieces of the puzzle in the proper order in order to get that piece of meat. So they, the bird used, uses one tool to get another tool to get another tool that will finally work to actually get that piece of meat at the end. And the bird solves this eight-stage puzzle in about two minutes. And it has seen the individual elements of the puzzle, but never in that particular order. So the the problem-solving skills are really remarkable. And this ability to use one tool to get another tool, it's called meta-tool use, and it's only been seen in humans and great apes and this bird. (laughs) So it's it's a terrific problem solver. It's also renowned primarily for its ability to make and use its own tools very sophisticated tools um it's the only species other than humans to make the hook tool and uh, it's a stick with a little hook on the end that the bird uses to fish out grubs from um from a log or or the base of a plant and um, it also makes these these kinds of hook tools from a, a plant called the pandanus plant which has little barbs along the edges and the remarkable thing about these Pandanus tools is that there are different styles of Pandanus tool making in different parts of the island. And that suggests that there's actually um, transmission of tool design over generations, which is a very good definition of culture.
0: So they're not only evolving the, the tool or the way that it's created, but then, um, yes, yeah, sharing it, learning it from each other. Right. One of the um, interesting parts about that that I found um, particularly revealing in the context of your book is that you say sometimes it's hard to adequately measure cognitive ability in a laboratory setting because there are so many variables. But in this particular case, the New Caledonian crow is doing this in the wild without any prompting from humans. This is just something that they actually do.
3: Yes, absolutely. And it was a scientist at University of Auckland, Gavin Hunt, who discovered this. He was actually studying another bird, the kagu, uh, which is a, um, it's a rare bird. It's, it's a ground-dwelling bird. It doesn't do very much. And um, while he was out there looking at the kagu, uh, he noticed the crows that were carrying these sticks. And uh, when a crow makes a uh, New Caledonian crow makes a very good tool, it will keep it and reuse it. So it carries it in its um, foot. From place to place, he noticed this, and then he noticed them making the tools from these pandanus leaves. And he did a remarkable thing, which was to look at the negative impression that the um, that's left on these pandanus leaves when the the crow was finished making them and that's how we determined that there were different styles of tool making in different uh different parts of the island
0: right and i was also interested to hear that although they don't have as many varieties of tools as chimps or orangutans they make them with absolute precision and specifically for different tasks in terms of the size and how it's bent and everything like that
3: that's correct. And they, um, when they craft a tool from a pandanus leaf, it, it, it requires a very methodical system of cuts and tears in the leaf. And they do that um, all ahead of time. So, and then they remove the whole tool from the leaf. So, it's clear that they have some image of what the tool needs to be. They're not just pulling it off and then tearing it, but they're actually crafting the tool while it's still on the leaf. And that does suggest that they have this mental template of the tool in their heads before they start to make it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And one of the factors which you raise as to why um, the New Caledonian crow might be so super intelligent or a, a true genius is that the environment that it's in is very unique. Obviously, in New Caledonia, um, there's a great level of biodiversity that's unique to that particular island, but also that uh, they have an upbringing that's prolonged as a child so they can um, be with their parents for longer. And then the other aspect you talk about is that there's only modest threats from competitors and predators.
3: Could you share more about that particular environment that they're operating in? Right. So the big question is, you know, why are these crows so special? And um, scientists are looking at the genomes of the birds and comparing them with um, similar crows. But one of the focuses has been on the environment. And um, like most islands, New Caledonia is very unique, and there are um, limited numbers of predators. And this does allow a young bird to um, accompany its parent and noodle around with tools, you know, poke around on the ground without the threat of, you know, a goshawk or something coming in and taking them away. Um, So they have these very long juvenile periods, and um, that is definitely a factor that's usually associated with intelligence is a long um, juvenile period. So these birds do have that, and it takes about a year and a half for a young bird to learn uh, how to make and use its own very sophisticated tools, and it makes a lot of mistakes along the way, but its parent is there to feed it when it uh, can 't get mm. the food itself and uh, so this is this is thought to be one of the reasons um, the bird also has a very uh, unique um, bill. Uh, and visual system that allows it to to see the tools that it's um, that it's making, and, and that's not true for for other crows. So that's a, a unique facet of the bird as well.
0: Right, and in terms of birds within the corvid family, other types what are some of the examples that you that you draw upon that you think are interesting but obviously we you know new caledonian crow seems like the height of intelligence but there are clearly other intelligent corvids around
3: there definitely are i mean but a couple of my favorite examples are the the clark's nutcracker which is a bird that lives in the um, western mountains of the u.s and this bird has a remarkable ability to remember where it put things so it um, is a caching species and it um, so it hides its food for future use and it can hide um, thirty thousand seeds scattered over dozens of square miles in thousands of different caches and remember where it put its individual caches months later. Even though the landscape may have changed from, you know, shifting soil, rock, snow, this bird goes to the location of its individual stashes and retrieves them. So remarkable on um, spatial memory in in that species. Um, another bird, the, the western scrub jay, also a corvid, it can remember not only uh, where it buried its food, but what it buried and when it buried it. So it um, caches different kinds of foods like uh, insects, nuts, um, worms. Some of them are perishable, some are not. And it remembers what it buried when so that it can retrieve first those foods that are most perishable. Mm. And
0: you term that mental time travel, the ability to travel back in one's mind, which is really something that you know, we assume is unique to humans.
3: That's we did think it was unique to humans, but this bird is is questioning that uh, that assumption.
0: It's fabulous. It's great to think outside ourselves and realize we're not that special sometimes. And also there's another bird that gets it's often maligned. Even here in Melbourne, uh, they get a tough time, and um, they're generally found on the street. And I mean, I've seen them—many of them disabled, one leg not there. Uh, pigeons get the worst time and the worst treatment, but they do have um, some significant capacity for navigation.
3: Yes, they have a capacity for navigation. I, I also want to just say, um, yeah. I, I grew very fond of pigeons while researching this book. Um, they're really, you know, the expression you pigeon brain could be considered something of a compliment because they they have a, a, an extraordinary visual memory. So they can learn and recall um, up to a thousand images um, and they store them in long-term memory for at least a year. And they can discriminate between... Um, different letters of the alphabet, different human faces. Um, They're really very adept at this this, um, visual discrimination. And then they have this amazing capacity to navigate, um, to get to places they've never been before. And uh, this is a a really remarkable phenomenon. And scientists think that Pigeons and other birds navigate using a map and compass system. Um, So it's kind of a collection of cognitive tools that are the natural equivalent of our GPS, our satellite navigation, our compasses. But all these things are are, uh, wired into the bird's brain. Mm. And they use different kinds of information um, from sun and stars, from magnetic fields, uh, landscape features, wind sound, even smell. And all of this information is funneled into their brains and then used to guide them to their destination. One of the um, uh, uh, quick story I want to tell yeah, you about uh, about navigation is not in the pigeon, but in a small bird called the white-crowned sparrow, which um, uh, migrates in uh, the U.S. from Canada, south to Mexico, along the west coast. And The the story I like to tell about the the extraordinary navigational abilities of these birds is scientists um, uh, captured uh, 30 birds total, I think 15 adults, 15 juveniles, when they were on their migratory path southward. And they um, put them in a crate, and they loaded them onto an aircraft, and they flew them uh, more than 2,000 miles across the country to Princeton, New Jersey. And then they released the birds there to see what they would do. Well, those birds, the adults and the juveniles, found their way back to um, directly head to their wintering grounds in Mexico. So, even though they had no idea where they were, they were released within hours. They were they were beelining back to their uh, to their uh, the location they were headed for.
0: That's phenomenal. Yeah. So, talking more about different kinds of birds and their unique skills i know some people will be able to relate uh certainly in coastal areas here but obviously i I think it may even occur in the city where there are these birds is the cockatoo and it's unique annoying ability to some to be able to open bins (laughs) and also well apparently they can pick locks
3: Yes, they can. They they I think cockatoos are extraordinarily um uh intelligent birds, both in terms of this um the, the ability to solve physical problems, but they're also very socially sophisticated and social intelligence is is highly developed in birds and in birds that flock like cockatoos, um you know, they have a very complex social world and they um they have developed some very sophisticated social skills to navigate that world
0: yeah and what do you think it is that makes them so curious or determined to you know defy forces of gravity which is a bin lid you know a heavy bin lid people actually have to put chains over the top of them something to weigh it down and even then they can be quite clever
3: yeah it's true and it's it's uh it's uh not just cockatoos we have ravens in uh, alaska that do the same thing they lift up a, a you know huge dumpster lid and um to get to and then work together to do it right. um uh, which is really, i think a remarkable thing yeah
0: that is amazing so One of the things that strikes people about birds is that group dynamic as well as just the individual. And so you talk in your book about flocking behaviour and how that happens and how they communicate with each other. Could you share a bit more about that?
3: Yes, so flocking is a very interesting phenomenon because... um, You look at it, and it looks like those birds are moving as one organism. You know, it's this tremendous unity of movement. And it was thought at one time that there was some kind of thought transference going on. Um, And that turns out not to be the case. What really um, is happening in uh, flocking behavior is that each bird is paying attention to the movement and direction of the six or seven birds around it. And responding to those signals. And what we see is this beautiful sort of curtain of movement, but it is actually emerging, this complex behavior is emerging from um, birds following a few simple uh, rules.
0: Yeah, in that regard, they look a bit smarter than they are. (laughs) But doing something really phenomenal that we still can't do ourselves. Exactly. It's really interesting. And that's one of the tensions that's in this book, and you are very measured and even-handed about this, is that you're not trying to overstate what some birds can do and just because they really uh, have genius or cognitive ability in one area doesn't necessarily mean that you're saying they're a genius in general in every area. In terms of your research and looking at these different birds, what formed your view as to how you could look at genius? Because you do um, mention a scientist, Louis Lefevre, and he talks about um, general cognition and that as being something that's um, important and relevant to birds. What's your view on that?
3: Well, so there is a divide in the scientific world between people that think that um, the intelligence of birds is what they call modular, that it's very um, limited to a particular area and that the bird has evolved intelligence in that area. And then there's the school um, that Louie is a part of that feels that there's, a, there's something called a general cognition and that birds that are intelligent in one area are often intelligent in another and uh, i think the world is moving um toward Louis's direction um and and i think that that's probably true you know we are still in um the kind of infant stages of being able to measure bird cognition to understand intelligences that are unlike our own and so i think we have a um a t- tendency to underestimate uh Birds in different areas and to not know how to measure their particular abilities. So, we're just beginning to learn how to do that. One of the interesting things that Louis did was um, to d- invent a scale of intelligence um, to measure intelligence in the wild, in the bird world. And um, he did that by looking at examples of um, innovative behavior in birds. And he went back through, I don't know, 75 years' worth of journals looking for these reports of of unusual, innovative, inventive behavior in birds. And then he divided those by family, and he came up with a a scale based on this um, capacity in the wild to do new things in response to um, challenging situations. And I think that's actually a a, a quite uh, reliable measure of, of intelligence
0: yeah it's a really interesting approach it's kind of like a meta-analysis of of reports on birds exactly and you do say that he came up with more than 2300 examples from hundreds of different species so it's quite a rigorous sample there
3: it is and um and the the um the scale that he developed is is um is turning out to be quite accurate in many ways so um you know it's not surprising that the corvids and and parrots at the top of the scale but there are also um surprises, herons, um, kingfishers uh, and smaller birds like sparrows, tits, finches that are um, really capable of this very inventive and um, uh, innovative behaviour.
0: Mm. And also you mention those that are on the lower end of the scale such as quails ostriches turkeys and nightjars but there's also an australian bird that is not as intelligent as we might think or at least australians being the patriotic people that we are would think our uh, our official bird on the coat of arms might be smart but um there's a funny story that you recount about about louis talking about birds and when he was asked about the the least clever bird
3: he uh, he mentioned the emu. Could you share with us a bit more about that? <laughs> yeah, he was on a radio program. So this this um when this paper came out, there was a lot of of interest from the press in it. You know, here you had your first scale of intelligence for birds. And and um you know, Louis was asked what birds were at the top, and he said, you know, the crows and the ravens, the jays, the parrots, and what was the bird at the bottom? And he said the emu. And um, when this was announced in the Sydney papers, it really did create kind of an uproar. You <laughs> got a lot of nasty mail.
0: <laughs> and, and you write the headline read, Canadian researcher named National Bird of Australia World's Most Stupid Bird. <laughs> I, I was struck. Sorry, go ahead. I
3: was just going to say that yeah. I think in the emu's defence... Mm um the 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 studies recently suggest that that uh, emu ba- brains actually have um a, a a density of neurons that's um that it's equivalent to many mammal brains so you know we're as i said we're just mm-hmm. beginning to understand how to measure bird intelligence so the emu ma- may have aspects of intelligence that we're just not Capable of measuring. Yeah, at this
0: point. we can't identify. Right, and that's interesting also because it's relative within the bird family. So you're saying there that they are comparable with some other mammals. So you know, right? They may be smarter than other mammals. Yeah, <laughs> or at least some of them. Yes. Yeah, and it did strike me that you you were talking about um, the emu part of the emblem and that it reflected. Uh, like the reason why it was chosen was because it was about forward movement in Australia progressing and not going backward and that we were actually uh, a little bit unaware that kangaroos and emus can move backwards. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's really quite funny. Yes. Um, but, yeah, that's. I think we might need to correct the history there and do something about it. I'm not sure the emu will get removed, though. Uh, so... Looking at at some of the other elements of this book, you do visit Louis in Barbados, and there are a range of uh, birds there that he finds really useful to study in the wild because you say they're very tame, so or- – Some of them are very tame. There are others that are particularly shy. And I was really interested in that contrast that you draw between two particular types of birds that he uses um, as a comparison point and the, the kind of really differing personalities that they have because within genius and this intelligence, these birds seem to have personalities, different types of ways of behaving that indicate a a different type of personality.
3: Absolutely. And so, what what Louis has discovered in Barbados. So, first of all, it's it's not a place with a lot of species. Um, so, if you're a birder. It's not a great place to tick off your you know, species on least. your life list. Yeah. But, the, but, but Louis loves it because the birds are relatively tame and easy to observe. So he, he likes to um, to work with the carob grackles on his uh, deck that he just puts out water and they'll come and breadcrumbs and they'll come and dunk the breadcrumbs to soften them. And, um, but the, the pair of birds that he um, has sort of created an, uh, basically a natural experiment are the um, Barbados bullfinch, which is a very clever bird and it's notorious on the island for being able to open these very tricky packages. It's um, uh, the sugar packages on, uh, you know, tables in a restaurant and um, packages of bread on your kitchen counter. Um, It has a um, a, a kind of paired species called the black-faced grassquit, which is um, 99% similar in terms of genetics, but it's absolutely on the opposite end of the scale in terms of apparent intelligence and um, boldness. So the, the bullfinch is a very bold bird, uh, very innovative, very clever. The grass quit really does just one thing, and that's peck at seeds in, in a <laughs> in lawn somewhere. And so yeah. Larry like said, How is it that birds that are so similar genetically, they share the same environment, um, the same kind of um, environmental challenges? How can they be so different? And it's one of the um, one of the great puzzles. Though you know, he's beginning to investigate uh, what's going on in their brains and giving them cognitive tests in the laboratory and trying to tease apart what might be the differences between these uh, these two birds.
0: I think I recall um, reading that those particular birds that were, they seemed less intelligent, although they couldn't pick up a skill or learn a task really quickly, that once they had mastered it, they did it better than the other birds?
3: Yes, exactly. So they're, they're less bold, less willing to try new things but they were actually more accurate in the end um, in completing those tasks so kind of slow and steady is a different strategy than the bullfinches, you know, quick fix and, 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 you know, get to my food as quickly as I can.
0: Yeah. And that really highlights the issue of a laboratory setting, doesn't it? Because often it is involved with, well, how fast can they do something or pick something up? And that's
3: a sign of, of genius or intelligence. Yes. It's really a question of what you're measuring. Are you measuring a bird's ability to solve problems or are you measuring its personality, its boldness?
0: And in terms of Lefebvre and and his work and the IQ scale, do you think that that this idea of a bird IQ um, will gain momentum and potentially start challenging some of our cultural assumptions around birds? Because this book is really, has a hugely strong case for us to be changing the language we use around birds and also our assumptions and and the many um, derogatory references that have just been part of our everyday assumption around birds. I mean, how can we change that?
3: Well, I think, um, you know, one of the things that Louis has shown is that birds have what's called behavioral flexibility. They have the ability to do something new in a situation that um, presents a challenge and that is um, really a very good definition of intelligence. And I think one of my aims in this book was to um, uh, encourage people to see the birds around them in a new way, to see them as the you know innovative, creative, intelligent creatures that they are, and you know to observe them. One of my my um, favorite comments by a reader was that he said that that. Uh, Reading this book was like getting a new pair of binoc- magical binoculars. It, um, it changed the way that he sees birds and the way that he um, interprets their behavior. So um, it, 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 that, that is the hope for the book, um, yeah. that it will change the way that, that people uh, view birds.
0: Yeah, there's a rationale behind that or at least a way to understand that perhaps why humans have made many assumptions is that, I mean, birds don't have facial expressions and they do have beady eyes and we can make many assumptions just looking at them um, as to how they would behave and and what's really happening there.
3: Right, and it's just because it's so different from the way that we conduct ourselves that, um, you know, we we make assumptions about that, you know, birds are dinosaurs and we assumed, well, that means that they're probably you know, stupid the way that dinosaurs were stupid. Well, yeah. all of that is being turned on its head now and uh, and we understand that there is definitely more than one way to wire a clever brain.
0: Mm. I want to close out this discussion talking about something we were, we were discussing off air because I found it so fascinating and I wanted to share it with everyone else. You are here uh, in Victoria and you've been travelling around Australia meeting with different scientists as well, which is just wonderful to hear. And Um, you mentioned that you were going to go to Tulangi State Forest and that well obviously um, any listeners might know that's one of my favourite places and uh, we spoke about that only a few weeks ago um, talking about the mountain ash forests in uh, or trees old growth trees in Tulangi State Forest but uh, I did play at the end of that interview a clip of bird sounds which I just showed you uh, earlier and you were talking about the different kinds of birds that habitate in Tulangi Forest and I found it really beautiful when I was there because they felt like they were just all surrounding you, like it was just you're in this theatre but you couldn't actually see where the sounds were coming from and they were so different but beautiful. And you identified a couple of birds or one bird there that can mimic sounds really brilliantly. Could you share more about that?
3: Yes, that's the the superb lyrebird, which is just a a fabulous mimic and it... uh, when I was listening to your recording, I heard um, a call and I said, oh, that's a whip bird. And then I said, oh, no, I think actually that's a liar bird <laughs> imitating a whip bird. Yeah. And, and these birds are such um, accurate and accomplished mimics that they can actually fool the experts, the the, the, the birds whom, whom they're mimicking, so that it, a whip bird might hear a liar bird and assume that it's a bird of its own species. This is a remarkable thing. It's like um, a it's like learning another language but many languages and and lyre birds have have really mastered mimicry i think probably better than any bird in the world
0: because I mean, when they're mimicking that sound, they're mimicking a language. Do they know that what language they're speaking when they're mimicking
3: it? Oh, such a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but it's one yeah. of the one of the things that I'm fascinated by is the uh, and I will say that you know it's the male birds that are known for their mimicry, but the the females are also uh, superb mimics. So um the female bird song is is now being recognized um, as you know a very important um uh, aspect of of bird vocalization
0: right and in terms of bird song Mm -hmm. um, there are uh, so many different sounds in each species how has that occurred like why do birds have so many different
3: sounds well, that's a very good question. And one of the things that I'm investigating is these, um, the range of vocalizations in birds and why they occur. Um, there are n- not just a variety of songs, but, but, but a number of birds have different dialects, um, you know, that they, they're within regions. And what is going on there and why do birds form dialects the way that we form, mm. you know, local accents, uh, regional accents? It's just fascinating. It is. Do you think magpies would have different dialects? I don't know. Um, yeah. But uh, it's, a, it's a very good question. I love the magpie song. I um, had not heard it until I came to Australia. Yeah, and yeah. it's a very beautiful song. That and the Pied Butcher Bird have just such gorgeous, haunting, melodic songs.
0: They do. And uh, I will play a clip that I, um, well, I recorded the magpie song in Ocean Grove once um, and I was just struck by how happy I thought the magpie sounded. I'm not sure if it was happy, but it just sounded from a human aspect um, that the birds were happy. So uh, I will play that as well to kind of illustrate our discussion. But thank you so much, Jennifer, for coming in. It was just an absolute delight to hear from you. Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed
3: talking with you.
0: And that was my interview with Jennifer Ackerman who is a science writer and author and she has written a book called The Genius of Birds. It's out via Scribe Publications and uh, Jennifer was in Melbourne for the Melbourne Writers Festival and uh, highly recommend checking out The Genius of Birds. Now, as promised, I'm going to play that recording uh, of a very vocal magpie. Um, I was just so surprised. By the range of uh, vocalization that this magpie had, and just how, as I said, happy it sounded. So, uh, here's my contribution to nature recording. love it uh what an interesting sound those magpies make. You're listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR FM and uh, I am Amy Mullins. As I mentioned before the break, uh, we have the great pleasure of speaking with Dirk Kurbjuwait, who is Deputy Editor in Chief at Der Spiegel. And uh, he has also uh, written two novels, Fear and Twins. He's currently uh, doing a bit of a book tour around Australia in Sydney, Canberra and Melbourne. He'll be appearing in Sydney later tonight uh, and talking about his book Fear and also uh, the German election and German politics. So we're very pleased to have him and welcome him now on the phone. Hi Dirk.
4: Yes, hi, good
0: morning. Good morning. Um, Thank you for joining me. It's really wonderful to speak to you because uh, on this show in particular, we try to um, follow other countries and their politics because it's important to to not be too insular and to look outside ourselves. And Germany is an important player and country in Europe, particularly in the EU. And uh, it seems to be almost the glue that holds the EU together sometimes when we see major crises such as the threat of, of Grexit. Um, but first of all, let's talk about uh, the upcoming German election on September the 24th. Now, uh, it's my understanding that Angela Merkel is seeking a fourth term in office. Um, that seems like a, a really um, a long tenure if she manages four terms. Is that something that is quite unprecedented in Germany uh, in, in modern times?
4: No, it's not. uh, It's quite usual, because uh, the whole German uh, system is set for stability. So we had uh, Konrad Adenauer, the first uh, German chancellor, for 14 years. Uh, Helmut Kohl ruled uh, 16 years, and uh, so uh, 12 uh, years of Angela Merkel is not too long for...
0: Germany. No, and one of the things that uh, that you raise in a piece you've uh, recently written in Der Spiegel is the very uh, strong contrast and difference in the US system versus the German system and that that Germany can tend to be um, somewhat conservative in terms of change um, and seeking change and perhaps that's why um, you see these long terms of individual leaders, but it is the truth that uh, that Angela Merkel has more recently been involved in some significant policy changes, uh, which she's subsequently backtracked from a little one of that is one of those areas is immigration uh and i'm just wondering in terms of your view and and your sense of um the the domestic situation in germany uh what has been the response to angela merkel's initial um announcement around the the one million migrants that would be welcomed into germany and then the the change the big political change she's had to make to somewhat retreat from that
4: Yeah, at first it was a shock for all of us uh, that uh, one million uh, people came to Germany. But uh, the Germans adapted very uh, fast to this uh, new... time, and uh, so we welcomed the refugees, and many people helped, helped out, uh, they gave them shelter, and uh, they cooked for them, and so, um, but on the other hand, there there was a rise of the right-wing uh, party, AFD, and there's, uh, I think, 15-20% uh, per- of the population, they are not in favor of these um, influx of refugees, but... Um, that is not too much compared to other uh, European countries.
0: Indeed, and was it the AFD that uh, that actually was quite successful in Angela Merkel's own seat in a recent election?
4: Yes, they were, but this was uh, last year, and if the federal uh, elections would have been held uh, last year, uh, Angela Merkel certainly would have lost her chancellorship. But uh, uh, a year later, you know, as I said, uh, everyone, or almost everyone, has adapted uh, to the new um, times, and so. Um the German people have rather calmed down and I think uh, she will be elected again.
0: Indeed. Well, if we look at uh, one of the main contenders, uh, it's the Social Democrats and uh, Martin Schulz. And at the moment they're polling about 24%, whereas the, so- uh, the Christian Democratic uh, Union and also the Christian Social Union are on 38%. So it seems that the polling at least suggests uh, that Angela Merkel has a clear will ahead of her how reliable are polls in germany in general
4: well they are not uh, very reliable as everywhere but uh, i think the the uh, difference between the social democrats and the CDO is so big that uh, uh, Martin Schulz won't uh, get the chancellorship. He had a good start, a very good uh, start, uh, and but then he disappeared for five or six week and, uh, weeks because there was an election held in North Rhine-Westphalia, our biggest state, and um, the candidate there uh, told him uh, that that is my show and please um, leave me alone. And he did that, and that was a big, big mistake. And you got almost forgotten and. Now, he has a very tough time to uh, to fight against Angela Merkel.
0: Yes, well, I mean, Angela Merkel provides a certain level of stability in a time of global insecurity, particularly with the election of Donald Trump. Uh, do you think that has really moved in her favour? Because when we saw Donald Trump and Angela Merkel first meet, uh, the the meeting itself was very insightful and uh, I can certainly say for myself I was uh, on her side and quite relieved that she provided such a strong um, kind of leadership and uh, and also that she seemed to um, to be one of the few principled leaders left in the world um, or at least provided a very strong contrast against uh, a very wavering Donald Trump what has been the re- uh, the response from um, the German uh, population to the election of Donald Trump in re- in relation to Angela Merkel and her leadership?
4: Yeah, Angela Merkel is a very experienced politician, I think one of the most experienced in the Western world and she's very decent, uh, she is uh, very serious and though I think the the German people they are, most of them are glad that she is now the Chancellor in uh, shaky times and that she is um, kind of a counterpart to, to Donald Trump and uh, So um, most of them, as I said, are are glad that she's there in in charge now at these times. Indeed. And Martin Schulz would be a newcomer on the international scene, and that is a disadvantage for him in the elections.
0: Mm, He's a, a, I guess, unknown entity in terms of this realm of politics, at least. Um, But in terms of uh, your recent piece... Inderspiegel, uh, which in English is entitled Why There Won't Be a German Trump, um, which is published on the 23rd of August. Uh, you talk about the the differences between um, Germany and the US and I was really interested in how you, you said that uh, in German politics, it is the system that rules, uh, whereas in the US the individual may prevail. And, and the really interesting cultural and uh, differences between America and Germany and the historical factors that are still very strongly at play in German politics um, in the aftermath of World War Two. Uh, in your view, why do you think, um, you know... Angela Merkel uh, represents Germany so well now and, and the kind of culture that is in German politics at the moment?
4: Well, uh, Germans don't mind to be bored. You know, <laughs> we had very exciting times in the, uh, uh, from uh, thirty three until 1945 uh, uh, of the last century and the whole world had these exciting uh, and devastating times with us. And so... The Germans have learned that uh, it's better to be bored uh, than to be excited, and they don't like uh, strong visions, they don't like pathos, they don't like uh, strong uh, emotions, and uh, they rather want uh, a calm politics, and uh, yeah, they don't mind to be bored at all, and... Uh, Angela Merkel is kind of a boring politician, you know, she doesn't talk too much, she doesn't show off any emotions and uh, so she fits very well to uh, the German mindset.
0: Mm. Um, Because I guess you say that one thing that comes with boredom uh, and that type of political approach is that it somewhat lacks dynamism um, and that really it will, you say uh, in the last paragraph it will take much longer before germany can inject dynamism into its economy uh and that you you say it's really um still running off an old idea of the combustion engine is that something um that you think can be uh reinjected back into german politics you can still retain some of the restraint and conservatism but uh, but still be looking to the future in terms of the german economy
4: Yeah, it is is a disadvantage for our economy because, uh, you know, as you said, we relied too long on the old uh, car and uh, now this time of the car is running out and we don't have an alternative in in Germany and the Americans and the Chinese, they are much better in uh, e-mobility and... um, so we, our problem is that we, we t- it takes us a very long time to adapt to new c- circumstances. And uh, so this is, on the one hand, it's an advantage because it gives us a stability, but uh, it's always a disadvantage to achieve the future.
0: Mm. And one of the unique uh, elements of the uh, German um, parliamentary system or political system is it that it has proportional representation and ensures that no single party um, can really ever gain an overwhelming majority, which means there's often a coalition of uh, parties that are together in this parliament and work together. Uh, in terms of um, the CDU and their preferences, who would they like to see... Um, if should they win go into coalition with
4: i think uh, angela merkel would prefer the fdp which is a liberal party and uh, and if this wouldn't work out then she will um, take the, the greens as well so it might be a three party coalition that is most likely now uh, if you regard uh, to the polls
0: and how, how well do those coalitions work? Because in Australia, uh, a hung parliament or a coalition or a minor government um, isn't really a, a common thing here. Is it, it, are the parties over there very collaborative?
4: Yes, they are, because uh, the, the uh, coalitions are mostly very stable. They don't break up in mid- mid-term, um, so it's not a problem uh, in, in case of uh, stability. Uh, But, you know, they always have to find compromises and um, compromises are uh, not very beautiful, but, uh, you know, they keep the stability for our country.
0: Mm, It sounds like we could learn a few things from Germany. Uh, And also, just finally... But um, we
4: could learn from you as well.
0: Really? And in what ways do you think um, that Germany could learn from Australia? I'd be really interested to know.
4: I think uh, Australia is a more dynamic country, much more dynamic country than uh, than
0: uh, Germany. Right. It's it's really interesting to see um the different impressions that one gets about uh, each country because uh, at least from my perspective, uh, it's really great that when when we look at over to Germany, we often see you know renewable energy and um, long uh, tenures of rent, so that people have housing security. Uh, and often those are the things I think that Australians might envy about about Germany is their um, their manufacturing capacity, their engineering capacity, and and the kind of move to renewable energy. Um, but yeah, that's something perhaps that a, a, some Australians would aspire to and think Germany does well at.
4: Hello? I, I can't understand you anymore because there's a certain beep in my phone. Oh, right. Hello?
0: Are you right now? Hello? We're just having some technical issues. Can you hear me now, Dirk? And there we go. No, we haven't. So that might be the end of the interview if I can't get Dirk back on the line. Uh, but uh, I think that was um, at least a really a great chat uh, with Dirk. You've been listening to the Uncommon Sense Podcast. Uncommon Sense is a show broadcast on 3 FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and noon. Thanks for joining me.